Welcome to PX14 today. My name is Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. This is our final podcast of 2015. We have the pleasure of speaking today with one of the most well-respected urban design gurus in our industry, Mark Shepard. We're also incredibly excited to announce our brand new sponsorship partner, Maddox. Maddox is one of Australia's leading law firms in planning and environment. Now, before we get started, just a quick reminder to visit our website, www.planningexchange.org, for further details of our speakers. Now, Mark, would you mind just giving a brief overview of your background and experience? Sure. Um, I grew up in New Zealand, uh, and uh, I started out as an architect. Um, I have an uncle and a grandfather who were both architects, and I was lucky enough to work out pretty early on that architecture was where I wanted to head. So I studied architecture at uh, University of Auckland. But while I was there, I pretty quickly realised that I was more interested in the public realm than in the design of buildings themselves. So um, as soon as I finished studying in New Zealand, I headed off to the UK to uh, study urban design at Oxford Polytechnic um, uh, while I was working part-time as an architect. Um, and again, I was lucky that when I finished my studies there, um, I managed to get a job at David Locke Associates, where I still work some 22 years later. So I've been at one place for a long time. That was uh, a, a job in the UK, and I worked there for about four years um, until I decided that um, uh, I'd had enough of the cold northern winters and uh, it was time to head back down under. Um, and um, uh, I met my now wife by then, uh, who grew up in Australia, and, and we both decided we wanted to live in Melbourne. So um, I told them that I was off to Melbourne, and David Locke said to me, well, look, why don't we open an office uh, in Australia? So I came down here in uh, late 97 um, and set up David Locke Associates in Melbourne. Mark, you've just had the Essentials in Urban Design published. What was the genesis of the project? Well, uh, Peter, I was inspired really by um, a couple of uh, people, close friends who are both published authors. Uh, one is Jenny Donovan, who used to work with me, um, and another is John Patrick, who's a, a prolific author in uh, landscape architecture. Um, and I was chatting with John one day, and he was making it sound really easy to write a book, and I thought, well, you know, um, why can't I write a book? And almost as an intellectual exercise, I, I said, well, what would I write a book about? Um, so I came up with an idea and, and pitched it to a publisher and um, to my surprise they accepted it and I think um, until that time I'd not really thought that it might actually go ahead as a project um, uh, but by then of course I was committed um, uh, and so um, that's how it all started. And how long did it take from the initial conception to publication? About three years altogether. Um, obviously um, uh, a lot of that time uh, was waiting while the publishers had the project reviewed and so on. Um, uh, it didn't take me that long to write it, but um, overall about three years. And what was the intent behind the project? What do you hope the book achieves? Well, one of, one of the things I've discovered um, over the years is that um, uh, the quality of our urban environment is really created um, by a whole range of different professions, architects, developers, planners, landscape architects, traffic engineers and so on. Um, and it seems that, um, at least in Australia, they don't really get a lot of urban design uh, training um, in their education. And so we've got an environment which is um, 
created really uh, not by urban designers. Um, and uh, I regularly have um, people coming to see me with projects where they've made what I think are some pretty basic mistakes uh, around urban design. And so I thought that perhaps there's a need for a book that sets out those essentials of urban design, um, really not for urban designers. The book's not aimed at urban designers. It's aimed at all of those other professionals um, uh, and, indeed, um, uh, as I say, developers, councillors um, who really have a big influence on the quality of the public realm um, so that they can um, hopefully think about urban design more when they're doing their work. Can anyone write a book, do you think? <laughs> Well, they say everyone's got a book in there, <laughs> um, and I suspect that's probably true. Uh, the trick is to work out the book that is inside you and uh, and bring it out. Yeah. Mark, what are some of the biggest issues facing the urban design industry at present? Look, I think um, in Melbourne and probably um, in most of the um, sort of new world metropolises, um, one of the problems we've got is is the suburbs that were created um, uh, post-war, um, which really are not um, uh, carrying their weight in terms of sustainable and, and livable cities. Um, we're lucky enough in most cases, and, and Melbourne's certainly an example of this, in having um, an inner ring of suburbs that were developed in Victorian times, uh, which have got a, a density to them and a walkability to them, which makes them uh, really successful places to live. Um, but that next ring of, of suburbs, the middle ring, um, whilst um, creating beautiful places to live, um, uh, 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 really don't have the density um, to support sustainable uh, city form uh, and, and livable places. And I think that um, one of the biggest challenges for urban designers is to help work out how to retrofit those suburbs so that they um, help make a, a, a better city. Um, Fortunately, there's a, there's a real synchronicity between what makes a sustainable place, a resilient place, um, a livable place, uh, and a healthy place. In all of those cases, um, what we're really looking for is walkable neighbourhoods, neighbourhoods that have the density to support local facilities, um, the street network, and the quality of the public realm to encourage people to, to walk. Um, and so if we can get those things right in the middle suburbs, then we will have uh, um, a, a great place for people to live. Mark, those suburbs were created by planning. Uh, why would planners now be any better at solving those those issues that, in a sense, they created? Well, I think we've learnt a lot um, over the last um, 80 to 100 years uh, about why um, traditional urban places actually worked really well. Um, of course, it was the car that changed all that, and, um, uh, and so we changed the way we design our cities because we had the benefit of the car to move about quickly and easily. Um, but what we've learned is that designing cities around the car has left us with a poorer place um, to walk and cycle and really to live. And so I think um, we're now relearning or perhaps learning for the first time the reasons why those traditional urban areas worked and made sense. Um, and fortunately, the middle ring suburbs that I talk about have got good bones, they've got gridded street networks and they've got, in many cases, shops and schools and parks and public transport and so on. So it's not a huge job to retrofit them, um, but we're really just starting to realise now how important it is to do that. And what are the barriers in Victoria, do you think? 
I think the main barrier is fear of change. So um, we've got a community that um, uh, in, in large part still is attached to the great Australian dream of a quarter-acre block, um, detached house and a garden, um, and, and don't necessarily understand that um, uh, other forms of living might be healthier and better for us all. Um, and so there's a resistance to change, and of course um, politicians by nature um, uh, want to give people what they think they want, um, and so um, uh, and, and so we find that, that the political forces that influence planning and development uh, are really with the status quo rather than with change. Mark, we, all of us within our own ecosystems, we all know, you know parts of our family or friends that don't fit the norm. So there's a, a wide understanding that, that society has a greater mix these days. Yep. And Australians are great adapters to new technologies. So you talk about fear of change, but surely that's not the problem we make it out to be sometimes? Look, um, I think you probably are right. Um, and what I find is that there's an increasing number of people who are interested in new forms of living. And I do think that um, this is a generational issue. And I don't think we'll be having the same conversation in 15 or 20 years. Um, we're really talking about baby boomers and to some extent Gen X. Um, I think Gen Y, from my observation, have completely different aspirations. Of course, you can't generalise, but um, uh, a lot more people now want to live close to the action, don't want to have a car, um, uh, are happy to live in an apartment, um, and that includes, of course, families, not just singles and, and couples. Um, and, of course, um, increasingly our households aren't traditional families, mum, dad and kids, um, we've got an increasing proportion of households that are um, empty nesters or young singles or couples without kids. So um, I think all of those things uh, mean that um, we will change and increasingly people are up for change. And so we're just going through this difficult period at the moment. And is that including diversity of housing in the suburbs that you talked about? And what are the barriers to doing that? Well, absolutely includes um, diversity of housing in the suburbs. I think in order to achieve more livable suburbs, um, we need to increase their density. But that doesn't mean turning everything into um, townhouses and apartments. It means having a mix. Um, we all know about ageing in place and the importance of that. And so giving people the option to um, stay in their suburb um, but live in a more appropriate form of accommodation or to be able to leave home and to be able to afford to live close to mum and dad. Uh, not all of us necessarily want to do that, but some may do. Um, uh, is an important uh, reason to have more diverse housing forms. And really, um, the barriers that apply there are, are the same ones that I mentioned before, the sort of conservatism, really, of the politics around planning. And what are the biggest issues facing the urban design industry at present? Well, I think um, certainly one of them is, is um, helping find new forms of housing uh, that uh, are more suitable for um, today's lifestyles and, and to contribute to sustainable and livable places. But forms of housing that also speak to the um, character and values that our society um, uh, wants. So 
um, this issue about trying to achieve densification in the suburbs um, maybe isn't so difficult if we could develop new forms of um, more compact housing that sat more comfortably um, in the suburbs. So rather than trying to introduce, you know, an old-fashioned six-pack um, in a in a street of a leafy street of detached houses, um, when you think about semi-detached houses or a concept called the big house, uh, in both cases, really a building that looks like a detached house but has two or three dwellings in it. That kind of um, model, I think, is an area that we need to look into more. Mark, can't we experiment and fail more? Can't we, can't we embrace the concept of failure? Uh, absolutely, we need to do that. We don't experiment enough. Um, clearly, we want to make sure we don't uh, create any big mistakes. Um, but I think we tend to over-regulate, um, which um, precludes the opportunity for innovation. Um, and I think that um, we could do with being a bit more uh, crafted with our planning controls so that we really focus on what's important and, and seek to control that, but um, leave open the opportunity for developers and architects and planners to innovate and help to create the new models of, of housing and of streets for the future. It's not just about buildings. Importantly, it's about streets too. And we are learning now that um, there are different ways of chopping up the space within a road reserve to provide more priority perhaps for pedestrians or cyclists or trams. And that's another form of innovation um, that we are doing, uh, but I think we need to do more of. Do you think we're missing the, um, the middle the middle ring of housing. So we've got a lot of apartments, we've got a lot of two-lot subdivisions, but we don't have a lot of townhouses. Do you think that's sort of the missing link? Yeah, I think yeah. that's exactly right. Um, uh, certainly in Melbourne, we seem to be um, great at doing sprawling mm. subdivisions um, and we do a lot of high-rise towers, but we don't do very much in between. Mm. Um, and I think that's um, um, largely caused by our... Um, planning policies, which um, really um, simplify things down into areas where there should be little change and areas where there should be a lot of change, whereas I think, in fact, we would benefit from having a lot more um, forms of development in between those two. Mark, with a lot of planning policies, there's criticisms that they seek to preserve the status quo and large areas are locked up uh, with preferred neighbourhood character and that sort of jeopardises future prospects, would you say? Absolutely, it does. Um, my observation um, from doing a lot of character studies in Melbourne is that um, the vast majority of it, of it is able to evolve without any great harm occurring. Um, a lot of the character in our suburbs is actually tied up in the street space rather than the buildings themselves. We've got beautiful tree-lined streets in Melbourne, um, and that's what gives our suburbs their character as much as anything else. Um, often I'm in a suburb and I think this is a nice place and I look around and the houses themselves are really nothing to write home about. It's the streets that are giving the place its character. And so I think our housing needs to adapt, needs to be allowed to evolve to respond to our changing demographics, our changing household mix, um, uh, but also our changing lifestyle aspirations. So um, when I grew up, I mowed lots of lawns. That's what you did <laughs> back in the 70s. 
Um, and frankly, I've never had a lawn since. I don't want to spend my time mowing a lawn, and I suspect I'm not alone in that. You've done plenty of it. So. I've done plenty. Yeah. I've done my bit. Um, and I think that you know people uh, now want different things from their home and from their suburb, um, uh, and, and that'll help us get to a more sustainable and, and livable uh, city. The concept of urban design, I think you mentioned earlier, is a fairly separate entity and it's a relatively um, recent trend. What trends in urban design do you see on the horizon? Um, look, I, I see us um, uh, increasingly being aware of the impact of everything we do on the public realm. So if I think about changes in the last um, 10 or 15 or 20 years, we've become a lot more conscious about how our buildings impact the quality of the public realm, and that's really what urban design is about. So I think we're heading in the right direction, which is great. Um, uh, and I think increasingly, um, certainly decision makers uh, are aware of um, those issues. And what's not really happening now at the moment is it's not really filtering through to the people who are actually doing the work. And so um, I, I do think we need to um, improve the training uh, of all of these other professions that I mentioned before who... Um, influence the public realm so that they're more conscious of, of urban design. Mark, you mentioned the importance of public realm. What about the importance of third places? Yeah, third place is very, very important. Um, uh, we're, you know, we're a, a social bunch, the human race. We like to socialise and that's really what cities are about, you know. Um, cities maybe, exist because people come together. Maybe you could just explain what third place is. Sure. So um, first place is where we live, second place is where we work. And third places uh, where we come together um, for socialisation. Um, uh, and, and they're an important part of livable suburbs. So parks, libraries and so on are third places. But we're constantly reinventing what third places are. Um, you know, coffee shops are pretty popular. We now see libraries transforming into um, learning centres, which have... Uh, where you don't have to be hushed all of the time. You can actually chat. You can work together on a recording uh, or, or, or something like that. So um, certainly I think it's important, particularly in our as we become denser, um, that we provide opportunities for people to socialise and recreate together. And we think of new ways for that to happen. And who do you think is leading the trend on the third place around the world? Um, that's a really good question. Yes, mm. I don't know if I have an answer for that. Um, the UK is always thrown around as being a great example of the third place and community meeting points. Do you think? Yeah. In your opinion, look, I think there? I, I think the UK are um, uh, certainly leading the way in many aspects of mm. urban development um, in, in terms of you know integrated placemaking. So not just thinking about suburbs mm. and business parks, but actually thinking about the creation of places that offer all of the things that we need in our daily lives and our work lives and so on. And that certainly would include, I think, um, third places. Um, but I think you could probably say that about um, parts of Northern Europe too, Scandinavia, Germany and so on. Mark, each generation thinks itself smarter or wiser than the previous generation. What mistakes do you believe future generations will think of our city-making approach? Look, I think um, future generations will look back at the way we um, uh, haven't um, 
embrace change to our suburbs and, and, and wish that we did it a lot, a lot sooner. Um, I think future generations will also look back at the way we build roads as if that's going to solve problems uh, and, and wish we, we um, learnt earlier that, in fact, building roads just um, creates traffic and we have to accept the fact that a, a large, mature city like Melbourne and, and many of the other um, New World cities, we really need to focus much more on sustainable and active transport. And what about politics? How do we, as development professionals, create a better environment for good decision-making at the political level? Yeah. Really big question, right <clears throat> Look, it's a really important question because I think much as we might like to get the politics out of planning, and certainly I, for one, would like to get the politics out of planning, I think it's here to stay. Mm. Um, but what we know is that politicians make decisions um, uh, based around what they think their community wants. Mm. And so one of the things that we can do is um, raise levels of understanding out there in the community mm. about what makes good cities. So rather than um, people just looking backwards at what they think has worked in the past, we need to um, uh, work with communities to help them actually imagine the future mm. in a positive way. Um, I think that uh, there's an increasing discussion about planning and development and urban design and the media, and I think that's a fantastic thing uh, because it's all getting people to think about um, place uh, and urban lifestyles and so on. So I think we need to keep building on that and helping our communities form a new view about um, the way we should be living in the future, and then that will then reflect back on the decisions made by politicians. And Mark, learning from other places, what places give you hope? Um, look, Toronto is a really interesting um, place, I think, from a Melbourne perspective, because it, it um, has a lot of similarities. They're certainly facing similar challenges, many of the challenges I've talked about that they face as well. But what they seem to have done in Toronto is, is, um, uh, is to uh, really have the guts to actually make the right decisions uh, rather than necessarily the politically palatable decisions. So I'm talking about things like having an urban growth boundary and actually sticking to it. I'm talking about things like densifying along the arteries that lead out of the CBD into the suburbs and significant densification, you know, eight, ten-storey buildings, so that they're actually finding ways to increase the density um, of the city without sprawling further um, along public transport lines. Uh, but in doing so, what they're allowing is that there are also lower-density areas near those corridors so that people have choice. Do you think it's about educating the community as to... So, I mean, you're talking about density along tram lines. Obviously, a lot of people would have a huge fear around that concept. How do you think we actually educate people to understand that that is not such a scary concept? Is it good examples? Is it um, education? What's the, what's the key there, do you think? I think there are probably two things. Um, one is absolutely good examples. Mm. So, um, because, as I said before, we don't build a lot of that... Um, sort of low to mid-rise mm. apartment living in Melbourne, we don't have a lot of good examples. Yeah. We've got lots of um, low-density examples and lots of high-density examples, but we don't have a lot of sort of um, mid-rise examples. 
And I think that means we don't, we're not particularly skilled at delivering that as an industry, whether it's developers or architects or planners. Mm. Um, and so good examples would be really important. And you can look at places like Sydney and find some excellent examples of that kind of format. Um, but I think the other thing is helping the community to understand the need. So um, w when you're in a community meeting and you ask um, uh, people where their kids are going to live, are they going to be able to afford to buy a house in the same suburb? Mm -hmm. um, almost certainly not, but they might be able to afford an apartment um, a few hundred metres away mm -hmm. along one of these corridors. Where are they themselves going to live when they get a bit older and they, can't, um, they don't want to support a large property anymore? Do they want to move suburbs? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Mm -hmm. And so that notion of recognising the different needs of a community and providing different forms of housing, um, I think is another way to help people um, get their heads around the need for this kind of development. Mark, in, in Victoria at the moment, we're doing the apartment design review. Uh, what, what is your, what, what's your view on the apartment design standards? Um, look, I, I think that um, to some extent it's much needed, um, but I think we need to be careful. I, I tend to think of it in two parts. One is the impacts that apartments, uh, apartment developments have on the surrounding area, so whether it's the public realm or um, neighbouring sites. And I think it's really important that we get to grips with that and we understand and provide control around how developments impact what's around them. Um, and, and a key aspect of that is, is building separation, which there's a lot of discussion around and I, I think we do need clarity around that. Um, the other part is internal amenity, and I think we've got to be really careful there because there's a big impact on affordability. Affordable housing is a, is a huge problem uh, in Melbourne, and I, I think we need to understand better the impacts that having more stringent requirements on internal amenity would have on the affordability of our housing. Um, my view is that um, people should be allowed to make a choice about not only where they want to live, but the amenity that they choose to pay for. So there may be some aspects of internal amenity that can be improved simply through good design with no um, cost associated with it, and that's a great thing. But when we talk about minimum apartment sizes and minimum room sizes um, and a minimum number of apartments facing north and those sorts of things, all of those notions uh, will increase the cost of housing, Mark, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Mark, in, in, as far as I can see, they no one's asked the people who live in the apartments what they think of their standards. Is, that's a bit odd, isn't it? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting point. There's been some survey work, but but not a lot. And I think there's an interesting comparison that, that can be made with other things that we buy, you know, cars, whiteware, and so on. Um, so in the case of cars, we have minimum standards to make sure that they're safe, and we should have the same with buildings, but in fact we do. It's called the Building Code or the National Construction Code. But beyond that, we allow people to make a choice. Do they want to buy, you know, a Rolls-Royce or do they want to buy a Kia? Um, and, and we provide them with lots of information to help decide where they want to be on that spectrum. We're not really good at providing that information around apartments. There's not a lot of information out there for people, particularly when they're buying off the plan, about the merits of this apartment versus that apartment. And I think that's an area we could look at. Do you then think that sometimes we're too purists in terms of our approach to urban design? Um, can you talk to the idea of rough edges? 
Yeah, th this is a really um, interesting concept. Um, I often come across proposed um, uh, planning scheme amendments which seek to introduce height controls particularly, which are uniform across an area. And I think, boy, when I think about all of the places that I really like, they don't have uniform heights. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what often makes places interesting is diversity of building forms mm -hmm. and, and diversity of heights. Now, that's, of course, hard to regulate for, but we're not helping to create it if we try and institute uniformity mm -hmm. of built form. And you could, you could take the same concept to apply to streets. So when we go to our newer suburbs and we look at the streets, they're all the same. Mm -hmm. I don't think that makes a good place. Um, I think uh, our older places, and particularly when you look in first world cities, and you look at the diversity of street types, mm -hmm. narrow, wide, more pedestrian focused, uh, more for public transport, um, just just different spatial experiences. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we do enough to engender that kind of diversity. Is that about stepping back then and removing some of the control? I, or, I think is it, or is it adding more control? What? No, I think it's about way. stepping back yeah. and removing control so that there is scope for uh, developers and designers to actually explore the ability to create different experiences. Mm. It gets back to that experimentation. It does, play. very much. Mark, buildings come and go, but places evolve. Can you talk to this idea? Sure. So um, when, we're, when we're looking at planning a new area or, or perhaps um, an urban renewal area, it's always important to understand that there are some things that are more important than others, and the things that are most important are the street network, mm -hmm. and then secondly, perhaps the subdivision pattern, because the street network's unlikely to ever change. So we've got to get that right, but more importantly, it's got to allow for change over time. Mm -hmm. So um, uses in an area change, buildings in an area change, but the street network needs to allow for a whole range of different possibilities. The subdivision pattern, I would say, is next most important, then buildings, uh, buildings can change, but they tend to hang around for a while, but they need to be adaptable because the thing that changes the most is uses. And we should be much less hung up about uses, in my view. We should create buildings that allow for the uses we want, but accept that they will change over time. And with technology, Mark, what, uh, what trends in technology are you excited about? Well, look, I think one of the things that will change our cities the most is the driverless car. So at the moment, um, the way we get about in a car is a massive influence on the form of our cities, the biggest influence, you know. Um, it, 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 it influences the design of our networks, but it also influences the design of the roads and streets themselves and the intersections and how friendly they are for pedestrians and so on. Um, I think driverless cars is going to absolutely take off uh, because people would much rather be sitting there doing some work or reading or listening to music or chatting than staring out the screen. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means, of course, is that we won't need to have somewhere to park a car on our own property. We won't need to have a car uh, somewhere to park a car at work. Mm -hmm. It means that vehicles will be able to travel much more closely together, uh, and so we won't need to allocate as much space to vehicles in the public realm, you know, at the moment it's something like 25 to 30 percent of our cities are uh, given over to roads, and most of that is given over to space for vehicles. Mm -hmm. So that's going to have a huge change. And we'll but, be a lot happier, won't we? Not, well, I not think so. in traffic for I an hour so. each morning. Absolutely. <laughs> but I think there are also um, other changes in technology that are really interesting and will have a big influence. One of them is 
something really quite prosaic, and that's about um, parking technology. So in this interim period, while we still have our own vehicles, we're seeing different forms of, of parking technology really influencing development. We're seeing very small sites now getting developed into high-rise buildings because we have um, lifts for cars and we have parking machines, which allows us to get cars onto that site. That's having a big influence because whereas we used to tend to only have widely spaced towers because they were separated by narrow sites, mm-hmm. now every site is a development opportunity. Mark, how, a question, how soon until the machines start making planning decisions? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I, I don't know about machines making decisions. That doesn't, uh, I'm not sure that that's a, a good thing. But I certainly think um, we can um, make much better decisions if we use machines more. Um, so there's a concept of the smart city. And, and what that's really about, in part at least, is about saying there's a whole lot of data out there about how we use our cities, how we get about, the services we use, um, uh, what we want. Um, and, and I think that over time we will increasingly use that data to make better decisions, more informed decisions uh, about the form and design of our cities. And I certainly think that's a really exciting way forward. I'd argue as well that I think machines um, would struggle to create rough edges. <laughs> Look, I think they would. And, yeah. and you know, one of, the, one of the things about good urban design and good city making is what's become known as placemaking, which yeah. is about creating distinctness. Yeah. What's different about this place? What's special about this place? Um, and that's one of the things that we're learning, relearning to do uh, and which machines are um, less likely to be able to do well, I think. Yeah, definitely. Well, Mark, thank you very much for the interview today. Uh, this, listeners, this is our 14th interview. Thanks for being on the journey with us. Jess and I have very much enjoyed it. With Matic sponsorship, we should be able to buy some new audio equipment in the new year, so our, the quality of the recording will in, in, improve incredibly. So thank you very much, Mark, and good luck with your book. Uh, thank you, Jess, and thank you, listeners.